We're going to hear now about an oral history collection which sheds light on Irish republicanism from the War of Independence right up to the 1940s. It's a series of over 100 taped interviews conducted by Unshin McKeown, who, over the course of three decades, travelled the country recording interviews with former Republicans. These interviews form the basis of three books. First, we'll hear the voice of the man himself, Unshin McKeown, and how he began one of his many interviews. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou amongst women, etc., 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 August 11th, 1992, and I'm talking here to Derry Kelleher of Cork. Go ahead, Derry, with uh, your random thoughts. Well, my name actually is Jeremiah Kelleher. I follow the Cork custom of calling myself either Derry or Maya. Anshin McKeown there, beginning an interview with Jeremiah Kelleher. I'm joined now by oral historian and author, Dr. Thomas McConmara, who has spent the last two years reviewing and analysing this material. Thomas, tell us first of all, who was Unshin McKeown and how did he come to record such a huge collection of interviews? Yeah, I think that the background of Unshin McKeown is really important to his role in undertaking this project of recording 102 people across the country in the 1970s and 1980s. So he's born in 1920 in Pomeroy in County Tyrone into a strongly Republican family. His own father, Maliki McCone, had been interned in the Argenta, in the prison ship uh, in the north of Ireland. His mother, Catherine, was a very strongly Republican woman. All of her children's second names were drawn from the leaders of the Easter Rising. His own second name was Rahala, Unshin Rahala McGowan after the O'Rahali. So he obviously was born into that type of environment which would lead him to gravitate in that direction, I suppose. And he did so. In 1940, he was arrested under the the new powers that the government had brought in and was in, jailed for a year in Arbor Hill before being moved to the Curra internment camp, which was the typical route for Republicans during that period. And that's really critical because of his direct involvement in the Republican movement in the early 1940s and his association with those men, both in Arbor Hill and in the Curra internment camp, when he went about documenting that history decades later, he was able to get access to people who, you know, in many ways had turned their back on the state as it was because they had continued to be active IRA men and Republican women throughout the 30s, 40s and even into the 50s. So you had people here who had refused to speak, for example, to the Bureau of Military History, but Unchin was able to get access to those people. So his Republican background, his you know deep interest in history, his very strong intellect in that regard was really critical, as was his kind of natural skills, which are borne out. So all of that coming together made him probably one of the very few people who during that time would be able to get access to the types of people that he did and able to engineer the disclosures that he did within the recordings. Now, some of the material is contained in a number of books. Survivors is probably the best known of those. I've read Survivors. There's some very interesting, very significant material in there. But you get a sense from the tapes that there's a kind of an element of folksiness about it that doesn't necessarily come across in the accounts, in the written accounts of, or the transcripts, if you like, of those interviews. What was it like to listen through all of those interviews? 
uh, you know, Miles, it was really incredible because uh, as an oral historian myself, obviously you, you can sometimes see yourself as the interviewer and, you know, there's times you're thinking, God, that's an incredible question or it's a, a you know, an incredible revelation that you're you're listening to. Sometimes you're, you're urging him to ask another question that you can see is worth asking when you're listening back. But it was really incredible. I mean, you take Nora Connolly O'Brien, the daughter of James Connolly, you know, was recorded a number of times by Unchin as part of this project. And I mean, that's really, really critical because we know so much about James Connolly. And of course, we know about Nora and her role in 1916. But to get the human revelations that sometimes didn't come out in the books, as you quite rightly point out, because Unchin was very determined to capture as much historical information and to piece together the different experiences that made up the historical periods he was exploring. But maybe what he didn't put as much focus on sometimes was the human experiences of those times, the emotions involved in, in all of that experience. But in, in some cases, it came out anyway. And you have Nora Connolly O'Brien talking about being a child. And she's the child of James Connolly in the early 1900s. And, you know, only Nora Connolly O'Brien could narrate that experience. So it was really valuable. That didn't appear in the book. But it is of tremendous value to our broader understanding of what that period was like through the experiences of some of the key people in modern Irish history. And that's right across the collection. You know, there, there are insights that we don't necessarily see in the books. And that's understandable because I know myself, when you put together a big collection of memory and then you try and piece together a book based on that, you're necessarily going to leave out vast amounts of material because it's just not possible to put a full transcription of every interview into your book. So there is so much richness and depth to the recordings that couldn't be expressed in the book. And it was brilliant that Nuada Unchinson, you know, decided back in 2018 to donate the material to the military archives and the military archives have been really determined to, to, I suppose, bring about as much awareness of the collection as possible. And that's what why I was commissioned to undertake the listening. But God, Miles, I mean, I wouldn't tell them too loudly, but I would have probably paid to, to listen to these because it was just an incredible experience. And it was something I had to take a lot of time at because... Often in memory, you know, there's little subtle references and you know they wouldn't be the significance of them wouldn't be immediately apparent. So it took very deep and very careful and measured listening to try and decipher what was being discussed, what was being explored and what might be the significance of a reference that mightn't on the face of it appear all that uh, hugely important. OK, let's illustrate, I think, what you're talking about, because we're going to hear a clip from his interview with Nora Connolly O'Brien, well-known Republican activist and writer. Her thoughts, her memories have been frequently recorded. We'd have seen uh, the old black and white clips on television. But what you get here is something very, very different. She talks in this extract about a Christmas in her childhood, uh, early 1900s. Her mother arrives home from shopping with a leg of pork for Christmas dinner. She's also brought sheets of tissue paper to decorate the house. And poignantly, uh, Nora Connolly O'Brien describes how she misses her father, James Connolly, who was away in the USA at the time. At Christmas time, I remember her coming in one day. Father was in the States at the time. He said he thought he'd be home for Christmas. And Mama came in from her shopping. Pork was cheap in those days. She got half a leg of pork for her Christmas dinner. And she had made a plum pudding. She had made it on early on in the day. When she had it all mixed up, she said, Come now, you must all stir this and make a wish. So we all stirred it and made a wish and kept very secretive about her wish, except I said to Mona, I wish Daddy'd be home. She said, I did too. 
Christmas Eve came and their stockings were hung up on the mantelpiece and Daddy hadn't arrived home. The voice there of Nora Connolly O'Brien recalling a Christmas round about 1902-1903 and wishing that her daddy, James Connolly, as we knew him, would come home for Christmas. Um, that's, Tomás, just one example of the value of these oral history recordings, a scene from childhood that might not make it into a, a history book, but one that really, really humanises all of the people involved, including, I suppose, in a strange way, the absent James Connolly himself. Oh, there's no question. I mean, the, the absent father, you know, is, is a theme we often consider in, in present times and in history. But because of his commitment to revolution, to socialism, he was in America for considerable periods in the early 1900s. And he actually wrote a poem at one point during Christmas. I wasn't able to, to clarify exactly what year Nora Connolly, Nora was talking about, but he wrote a poem about his yearning to be at home for Christmas from the other side of the Atlantic. So, again, you, you get a sense sometimes, and I've, we've talked before about this, Miles, that, that this really brings about a relatability to the historical experience because sometimes we hear about Connolly or Pierce or, or all of these characters and you know they're seen as, as historical figures but we need to look beneath that to people to their families and to the experiences and again that comes out in a tape and I'm just drawn to one particular example just to, just to further illustrate that Mae Dalig down in Kerry was interviewed a number of times and she was the sister of Charlie Daly who was executed in Donegal during the, the Civil War and she recalls being again a young girl Immediately after that execution, or at least in the months afterward, when her family, who had taken the anti-Republican side, uh, were being raided by the Free State Army and there were shots being fired around the house. And she recalled being inside, kneeling down, praying to her brother, Charlie, who had been executed, that the Republicans who were at that moment hiding out in a dugout in, in an adjacent field wouldn't be found by the Free State. And again, that I think is such a just a deeply human experience and brings you right to the real emotion of, of a raid, of a civil war, of a division, of a memory of her brother who'd been executed. All of the tragedy is bound up sometimes in that just little moment of a young girl praying to her executed brother that his comrades would be safe uh, in the field nearby. Now, McKeown drew on those interviews, as uh, as I said, for books like Survivors, published in 1980. That's about the struggle for Irish independence. It's about the period up to the end of uh, the middle to the end of 1921. Um, tell us about Dan Gleeson, one of the men featured in that book. Tell us about that interview that you've listened to. Yeah, again, Dan is, is a really interesting example because, again, he would have had a Republican tradition in his family in Nina and County Tipperary, where he was from. So often the recording might centre in on the individual's experience at a particular time. But within the broader discussion, you get a sense of their background, of their, their lineage. And you also get a sense even after the, over the decades that followed. This is a man who was, you know, as a teenager, active in the War of Independence in North Tipperary, but was in 1957 interned for four months and received back to bonfires in, in Nina. So, you know, you're getting decades of experience within the one recording and Dan was well able to narrate that. And in his uh, recollection of the War of Independence, he gives a really good insight into the, you know, the daily experience and the fact that it was a daily experience and a constant experience, particularly in 1920. But another element of the value to Dan Leeson you know, and to all of them is even at a linguistic level, Miles, you know, Dan would speak in, in a certain way and in a certain vernacular that has its own value. And when you piece that together with 102 other voices from all over the country, from down, uh, you know, down to Kerry, to Nina, as in the case of Dan Leeson, there's a, another 
hidden value to them, but certainly he was able to narrate the experience of the War of Independence with tremendous effect. And we're going to hear that voice, the voice of Dan Gleeson, in his interview with McKeown. He reflects on the events of 1920. Well, I will say this in all fairness now, like, during 1920, I'd say, all along that period in the winter and period of 1920, there was hardly a night but we were out. Yeah. Block yeah. and roll with all yeah. kinds of activity. Very active, yeah. It was nearly full time. You got home and you tried to have a, mm. a week's sleep and mm. you had tried to do something, but that was the story, like, of the tan wall. Yeah. And uh, I have this to say, like, that all the fellas that I came in contact with, I pay them great tribute because, with very few exceptions, they didn't know what fear was. Yeah. The, you know, the equipment mm. and the kind of an enemy they were dealing with. Yeah. They all believed that there was nothing, it was victory and nothing less. Yeah. And yeah. that we were winning and going to win. There was no other way, like. Yeah. There was no despondency. Yeah. And when someone was killed, well, it was. Mm. The sacrifice, mm. of course, but it didn't know. We must no. go on, put greater, more determination yeah. to go on with the struggle yeah. and to win. Dan Gleeson there, speaking to Unshin McKeown, reflecting on the War of Independence and paying tribute to the spirit of his comrades. Another one of McKeown's historical publications was the IRA in the Twilight Years. Now, that tells a very different story, the story of the IRA between the period 1923 to 1948, and once again draws heavily on the recorded first-hand testimony of those who lived it, taken from those tapes. Uh, the most important aspect of the testimony McKeown recorded is memories of internment in the emergency. Would you tell us a little bit about some of those tapes that you've listened to? Sure, yeah. And I think it's it's probably really where he comes to life as an interviewer because, you know, he can relate directly to the experience because he himself was interned for a period of time in Arbor Hill first and then in, in the internment camp. But we often maybe underestimate the significance of that time in terms of political activism and its battle against the state because we often traditionally, of course, associate the IRA with, with confronting the British Empire or British occupation. But I would think it, it, it evolved into a situation where in the late 1930s and early 1940s in particular, the IRA maybe became more focused on the state as its enemy, and certainly the state saw the IRA as, as one of its enemies as well. So he documented that experience from you know a significant number of former activists and gave a really critical insight into the diversity of opinion within the internment camp, for example, you know, the, even the makeup of the the Republicans who were interned, because you had a number of Protestants who were interned. There's a famous example given of a, of a young Protestant who comes into the internment camp in the Curra and he's a, he asks the, the staff where should he go and he's told, well, if you want to go and learn how to make a bomb, you go to Hut A and if you want to become a communist, you can go to Hut B and if you want to learn the Irish language, off you go to Hut C and so on and so on. And it actually rang through because there was such a diversity of, of opinion and outlook within the makeup of the entire Republican movement, which in some ways could be a good thing, but it led to division. The camp itself was divided between those who support Liam Lady and those who supported Pierce Kelly. And again, we get that experience. We get the shooting of Barney Casey. Many of the people witnessed it. I mean, this was, uh, you know, a really critical moment in that time. The burning of the internment camp, or at least parts of the internment camp by the internees, is documented to tremendous effect. But also what is happening outside of that 
at that time is also documented. This is at a time immediately after you know the IRA's bombing campaign in, in England and many of the people speaking were involved in that campaign, either peripherally and some even directly involved. So all of that, the raid on the magazine fort in, on the 23rd of December 1939, you know, a number of participants are speaking about it. Also, other IRA men who remembered the moment when they heard about the raid are documenting that experience. So you're, you're not only getting an insight into that time, but you're getting an insight into how significant that time actually was. And at a time when you know World War II is obviously raging, the government in the state took the decision to enact emergency powers and that gave them the, the method of arresting and interning over 1,000 Republicans. So again, without McOwen's access and his insight that he generated, you know, a lot of that period would be less understood than it might be with his material. Now, we're going to hear a clip of his conversation with a man called Tony McInerney. Tell us a bit about him. Yeah, Tony's a really interesting character. He um, had what was described as a fairly bohemian lifestyle. J.P. Dunleavy wrote a novel called The Ginger Man. And Tony McInerney is actually the basis for the character Tony Malarkey in that novel. You're talking about the 1970s and 1980s, and many of them are reflecting back, and some of them you can hear in their voice, they're still as committed as ever. Others may have developed a different view on that period, but, you know, he remarks in the piece that I think we're, we're about to play, Miles, about the state of the internment camp when he arrived into it, how dishevelled the men had become, and the conditions were fairly poor, and the, there was a tremendous tension between the internees and, and the staff in the camp, but he was able to reflect back and to really consider what in the name of God had he had he gotten himself in for when he when he arrived into the internment camp the first time. Okay, let's hear from former IRA volunteer Tony McInerney, who's being interviewed by Unshin McKeown about his internment in the Curra camp. What were your first impressions when you reached the Curra? You know, you went down a hill and yes. there was the big camp spread out in front of you with uh, about five hundred men in it. Shock. Um, shock that human beings could degenerate in this state of awful clothing and torn and shabby and boots hanging off of them. And, Martin know, Henry's in grey shirts. Yes. And, and, and long beards. Yeah. And you thought, what, what an uncivilized bunch I'm getting into. Is that what you felt? Yes. I suppose anybody being sent to a gulag for mm-hmm. the first time mm-hmm. uh, must experience a sense of shock. Yeah. Uh, actually, when you when you sit down, I became one of them. <laughs> Tony McInerney there describing conditions in the Curra camp to Unshin McKeown. And all the extracts, by the way, that we've been hearing from his collection come to us courtesy of the military archives. And by the way, two of McKeown's books, Survivors and the IRA in the Twilight Years, 1923 to 1948, can be accessed and downloaded from the military archives website. Wonderful, wonderful website. And uh, another book, Harry, his biography of Republican Harry White, will follow later in the year. Um, Tomás, what about all these audio interviews that we've been listening to. Are there any plans to digitise them? They've been digitised to a fairly large extent and what I've been doing is, in addition to listening back to the material, is creating reports on each of the interviews so that you can navigate through the interviews according to the subjects that you might like to explore. So, for example, if you're looking to 
just listen to pieces that relate to the raid in the magazine fort, then you'll be able to do that through the material that I have actually created. So what the military archives and Commandant Daniel Iotis and Noel Grothy are really determined is to, you know, not only make this material available, but to make it available in a way that optimises engagement and makes it as easy as possible for people to engage in the material. So that work has been done. You know, there's a period of, of work to be done in terms of fully making that available to the public through the, the website, Miles. But certainly that is the work that has been in progress for the last two years has been about trying to get the material available to the public. Harry is the last collection. I'm just about finished going through that collection in itself. So certainly I would say by the end of 2020, we, we will have all that material available on the Military Archives website. It's something I definitely am determined to, to produce a, a book on at some point, you know, because it, the collection itself has a value, as, as we've kind of illustrated, beyond the books that have been produced on their basis. You know, like all collections of memory, it has this value that has a, an ability to provide insights to people coming at a collection from various different points of view. And, you know, we only can do that if it's available. And something I feel very strongly about as an oral historian, that there are so many collections throughout the country that, you know, were undertaken, spent huge amount of time and effort. And unfortunately, for various reasons, they don't become available to the public. Um, so, you know, Nua the Macon and his family, Nua the Unchin Son and his family deserve great credit in presenting the material to the military archives. And the military archives is our credit for putting so much effort into making them available and, and shining a light on their value for, for the general public. Well, no better man to be going through this material than yourself, oral historian par excellence. You've been documenting and recording social memory of the revolutionary period since you were a teenager. Uh, so well done on the work on the Unshin McKeown collection. Dr. Thomas Mokkonmara, thanks for joining us this evening to talk about that collection and to highlight the value of oral history from the revolutionary period.